Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. What an episode this one will be. Man, am I excited. Woo! This week, I sat down virtually, of course, with two-time Olympian, two-time national champ, Hall of Famer, nicknamed Lady Magic, the one, the only, Nancy Lieberman. Before we get to that gem-worthy conversation, here are this week's hottest headlines, and we're kicking things off with some women taking over. Up first, groundbreaking news in baseball. Kim Ang was named general manager of the Miami Marlins Friday morning, making her the first woman and Asian American to serve as GM in Major League Baseball history. Wow. A moment for Kim. Mm. The significance. I mean, this is such a powerful day in Major League Baseball. Ang broke into MLB as an intern and has 21 years of front office experience working for the White Sox from 90 to 96, the Yankees from 98 to 2001, and the Dodgers from 2002 to 2011. She spent the last nine years with Major League Baseball as a senior vice president. She said in a statement, after decades of determination, it is the honor of my career to lead the Miami Marlins. I mean, those words. There's just so much power in this hire, and it's honestly a very um, emotional thing, I think, for a lot of women. The phrase we're constantly hearing and constantly repeating is, if you can see it, you can be it. And too often, women are left out. Too often, women are kept out of certain rooms and certain positions. And today, for little girls and young women everywhere, they have another example of what they can be. And man, that is just ugh, so beautiful. Up next, we're keeping it with baseball news, Jose Abreu won the AL MVP award this week and his reaction was so incredible. He was surrounded by friends and family and was just overcome with emotion, crying, tears of joy, and, and celebrating with his friends and family. Abreu won 21 of the 31st place votes and 374 total points. His teammates reacted with so much love and support on Twitter. Um, it was really special to see their reactions. Abreu is the fourth White Sox player to win the MVP award and the first since Frank Thomas in 1993 and 1994. So it's been a minute. It's been a minute since the White Sox have had some representation at MVP. And the team, I, I don't think, could have been happier to celebrate Abreu and everything that he accomplished this year, capping it off with this MVP award. You can read more about both of those stories at suntimes.com slash White Sox. Lastly, 
The NWSL expansion draft took place this week, and the major move by the new franchise was their selection of Tobin Heath and Kristen Press. Oh, this is a risk, but obviously has potentially high reward, but only time's going to tell on that. Both Heath and Press are currently playing for Manchester United in England, which will keep them there until May, and they are obviously expected to compete with Team USA in the 2021 Olympics. So it's pretty unclear when or even if they'll play for Louisville. However, these players are at the very least assets for this new team. So again, time will tell. <laughs> you can read more about the NWSL and the Chicago Red Stars at thesuntimes.com slash soccer. All right, man, are we all breathing? Are we all good after hearing all of that exciting news? I mean, I'm just geeked over here. Now that I've made it through all those headlines, here is my conversation with legend, Nancy Lieberman. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It's, uh, it's my pleasure, Annie. It's going to be fun. First things first, I really want to start with from the very beginning. You shared a story with me last year, again, when we were writing this story about kind of the birth of your grittiness in the game of basketball. You told me how you used to take the train into the city from Far Rockaway and you would play with men sometimes two, twice your age in Rucker Park. And that just really stood out to me because I imagine it really played a huge part in shaping who you are and who you became in the game of basketball. So can you explain what those experiences meant to you and also gave you in shaping your career? Well, it, it, it certainly gave me a toughness. I mean, when you get knocked around by guys in the schoolyard in New York at 12, 13, 14 and, and beyond, uh, it, it taught me that I, I had to be dedicated. Um, I had to have uh, accountability, responsibility. When I left the park and went home, I had to practice because I wanted to earn the respect of the guys. You know, they were bigger, stronger, quicker. Mm-hmm. And I need to figure out, I needed to figure out solutions to get into those games. Mm-hmm. So it, it actually made me, if you think about it, a critical thinker. And, you know, isn't that like what STEM is? Critical right. thinking, inertia, science. I know the math. I know if you have more points than me, I lose. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's, it's it's a beautiful thing to use sports as as such an education to to get to a higher level uh-huh. and to to just know that that's how you want to operate every single day. Mm-hmm. You want to give the best of who you are. And I just you know I feel like with Ali, I was always chasing the goat, and it just gave me extraordinary motivation to try to be great. Definitely, and, and ne- never be afraid of the challenge. Definitely. You know, I was going to wait to bring this up until later in our conversation, but since you mentioned the GOAT, you had an extremely close relationship with Muhammad Ali and his family, and the story of how you two became so close is really special. It was a chance encounter during an appearance at the New York Stock Exchange that really led to this lifelong relationship. So what did what influence did he have in your life and what did that relationship mean to you both professionally and personally? When you see somebody who you just look up to 
and uh, from the time I saw him at 10 years old on TV, I just looked up to Muhammad Ali and I appreciated his attitude, his, I guess his bravado, his confidence and belief in himself, because I had never seen that with anybody before. Mm-hmm. And at that time at 10, as I told you, you know, I told my mom I was going to be the greatest of all times. Right. And you know, she just didn't, really didn't know what that meant. Quite frankly, I probably didn't know what it meant at that, you know, at 10 years old. But then that day in, in December of, 2000, uh, of uh, you know, 1979 and doing an appearance with Ali in New York without knowing he was going to be there. Right. You know, at this point, you know, I'm going into my senior year, I'm going to be 20 years old. And he just, he must have sensed something like maybe I was a little fraudulent. Maybe I was doing a little BS in me, Um, (laughs) you know, a little, you know, insecure. And what he taught me was he said he was going to be in my life forever. Mm. And he was, I mean, to the day we buried him four years ago uh, in June and to have somebody like that to kind of talk to. And, you know, he saw things from a micro and a macro level because he would always say, Oh, you know, God made you special. And I think Mm -hmm. I told you, I went, you know, God too, you know, everybody. That's amazing. (laughs) I think when I said that to Mohammed, he probably went, Oh no, I cannot leave this girl out here. She needs me. She needs me. (laughs) She, I've got to be here for her. And he kept telling me, he goes, you know, you're special and and you're going to influence people's lives. I didn't really have a good understanding at that point. I mean, I knew I was a a good basketball player, but you know, that's 1979 and it's, it's 2020 and here you and I are again. And to be an athlete from the seventies and eighties and to be relevant in 2020, there's, it's not by mistake. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, this is my belief system. Nobody else has to believe it, but God does not make mistakes. Mm-mm. I'm supposed to be here. I'm actually supposed to be doing this podcast with you. It's not by accident that we met, that we talked, right? that I respected you or you respected me. And here we are again. And this is what we should be doing for each other um, as professionals, as women supporting each other mm-hmm. and doing life together. I, and so it's an honor and a privilege to, to continue you know, our friendship. Uh, through your job. Well, listen, Nancy, it's, it's my honor and my privilege to continue this friendship. So like I said, in the beginning, have nothing but respect for you and appreciate your time. But, you know, you talk about the experience of being an athlete in the seventies and eighties. And and obviously that was just the start of it, but what were those experiences like? And you, you are a woman who, from my experience talking with you have always have always talked about being a woman in the game and it not being a hindrance. But I do wonder what your experiences were like being a superstar female athlete at that time. Uh, You know, you, you bring up some really good questions. So um, I owe you uh, transparency when I'm interviewed and people say to me, what was it like? What were the pressures? Were you nervous? Were you scared? Did you have obligation? Did you have responsibility? 
I know that the world wants to hear this like amazing story of courage and character and this right. and that. When you're young and you're playing, we, we're fearless. We right. don't think about all those things as you get older. You know, I played with players that were so smart, but in sports, you can't overthink everything and that will be your demise. So when I tell you that I was playing in the Olympics and I was in high school and I was doing this, I didn't think of success or failure or this or that. I don't plant my own landmines. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't live with mind monsters. He likes me. He doesn't like me. They called me. They don't want me. Annie doesn't want to do an interview with me. Maybe she wants Serena Williams. I don't plant all those mind monsters in my head. I'm just a normal person who's had uh, a amazingly blessed life and career as a professional athlete, as a mother. And I don't overthink anything. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it irritates people <laughs> because, you know, in this day and age where there's a podcast for everything. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, a to get you through your day. Yes. I'm as, I don't want to, you know, I'm not being self-deprecating. I'm not saying I'm not a deep thinker. Um, cause I don't want to act like I don't care. Cause you know me, I do care. And I do have empathy, but I'm not going to follow people down that rabbit hole. I'm a minimalist. I either can win or lose. The Yankees can make the World Series or, you know, lose to Tampa Bay. I'm either, you know, I, I wake up virtually every day happy. And I don't want people, I, I, I have gratitude. I have great faith. Um, I know that I'm an influencer. I know that I want to help people. I want to change the world. I want to unite people. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm going to have a positive outlook mm -hmm. no matter what. And that's just how I am. And that's not to say that, you know, I don't have you know bad days or, you know, I had knee surgery three months ago and my knee still hurts, but I just have, a, I, I think the only difference between a good day and a bad day is your attitude and your belief. And I want to wake up with a good attitude. Just, diving into that a little bit deeper and the level of empathy you've always shown throughout your career, both as an athlete and in all of these other facets that you've tapped into both as a coach and through the community work you do this year has presented so many challenges. How has your empathy helped you through it? I got to tell you, 2020 has been devastating. It is, uh, we have been challenged as a nation. The African-American community has been challenged. The white community has been challenged to open our eyes and show love and kindness and understanding. Um, our country might never be the same again, but we're going to grow together. Mm -hmm. So when you ask me that question, I guess, with uh, this being the way it is, you know, uh, the black community needs us and we need the black community and we need the Latino and Hispanic community and the Asian community and the brown community. Uh, this country is, this country is based on unity, on, on, on pulling together 
in crazy times. And we will. We will do this again, even though we have to look at each other. I, I'm, I, I can't be mad at people for politically their political views. I have to do my homework and figure out, you know, where, where do I believe and where do I stand on? But, it, I, I, but I'll never be mad at anybody. I have to be open to understanding that everybody has a difference of opinion mm-hmm. and maybe I learn from it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they learn from me. So I, I think this is a really important time to, you know, as I just said, have a difference of opinion, but don't, don't let go of each other's hand and be there for each other and let's grow together. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's going to happen in 10 or 15 years. Nobody ever thought 2020 with COVID. I had COVID. I got sick in April. Uh, it, it's supposed to hit my, my age group of, you know, 28 years old. <laughs> um, and then I gave it to TJ, you know, uh, and I got my son sick. Isn't that crazy? But I mean, he was asymptomatic. I was sick for, it was like the flu for four or five days. And I, I feel very fortunate because I lost some people in New York City back in April, five mm-hmm. or six guys, because, you know, our country wasn't prepared. Not at all. I, I got to be honest with you. We haven't been prepared for four presidents ago. We forgot that we could, this, something crazy could happen. I mean, it's it's a head scratcher, right. and I, whether it's the, uh, Trump or Bush or Obama or Clinton, right? Do your job, right? Right. Do your job, and let's not point fingers. Do your job, because your job is to protect us as commander in chief. This is what we must do. So I'm not mad at anybody. I'm glad um, I survived. I'm I'm heartbroken for the people that that lost um family members the elderly horrible i mean my mom's 91 and thank goodness you know they did a good job at her um assisted living facility transitioning slightly the WNBA has been a leader in fighting for racial justice human rights and equality from day one how impressed are you by the women in that league and how they continue to set the standard? Well, um, let me start by saying I'm very impressed by, you know, Kathy Engelberg and the, you know, my sisters in the WNBA. But for them to feel confident to be able to do what they've done, you have to look at Adam Silver. Mm-hmm. Adam Silver is the greatest commissioner in sports. He's unbelievable how he's been able to hear the players and, you know, tell them that they can emote and they should be able to have a voice when the commissioner, empathetic, respectful, open-minded, when the commissioner says, I mean, look what Goodell went through for a couple of years Mm -hmm. because he was trying to, you know, put, you know, a a round peg in a square hole. No, let, they're human beings. They're entitled to do what they have to do. Now, uh, you know, I understand business is business and everybody has their own. Should they be able to protest publicly or at their place of work, uh, it, you know, everybody's going to have a different take on it. Mm-hmm. But Adam Silver said to the players, and it, it, it started, you know, way back with the Clippers. Um, and, 
you know, when he took over, I mean, it was challenging, right? You, you remove the Clippers owner, you, you bring in new ownership and Steve Ballmer. And I think he, between him and, you know, Michelle Roberts, uh, you know, the, the president of the, the PA, mm-hmm. they, they built this bond on transparency, on, on issues that are real. Right. And I, I respect what he did. So to answer your question, if he doesn't do that, then maybe Kathy doesn't get a chance to empower the WNBA to let because now you're scared. Ah, if I say something, uh, you know, what are the ramifications? There are no ramifications. You know, uh, now there could be to the outside world, but internally you feel empowered, you know, um, by Kathy and Adam. Absolutely. And Kathy and Adam have led the way and, and Adam specifically in, in empowering the athletes within the NBA to speak on anything and everything that they, they, they need to. The WNBA though, players, and, and maybe you could speak to this from your experience playing and coaching, they have always, whether the commissioner has supported them or not, they have always advocated for human rights. And you saw, you saw at different points within the WNBA's history, players get fined, players um, get penalized for doing these things, and yet they never stopped. And, and that's taken place in, in every league. But it's, it just has always seemed like the WNBA has cornered that and that they've, since the birth of that league, have never backed away from the challenge. And I wonder if you can speak to that, if, if you agree with that, if you disagree with that, what your thoughts are on uh, just from your experience of af- actually participating and being a part of the WNBA. And, 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 and I do agree as both a player and a coach in the WNBA. And I admire the women. Women are strong. <laughs> women have conviction. Um, you know, when, when you feel you don't have anything to lose, you, you, you have something to say and it's really important. And the WNBA players have done that. And, you know, one of the first times was when they were working on their collective bargaining agreement. Mm-hmm. And that was a milestone in, in, you know, salaries and benefits. And, you know, they, they, they held strong. Uh, again, I thought that, you know, Adam uh, Silver and, and Mark Tatum were very open to hearing what the players had to say. And it was a very high level uh, conversation of negotiations. And, mm-hmm. and I really admired uh, the WNBA, the Players Association, you know, for, you know, having put together a package of their values. Mm-hmm. And that kind of rolled into, you know, 2020 and COVID and people losing their jobs and how they wanted to mobilize to help their community. Um, you know, African-American women are on the lowest pay scale. I mean, they, they earn somewhere between 57 and 68 cents on the dollar. And I, I really believe that women of color need to, um, need to be highlighted, need to be encouraged, need to have opportunity, um, just like any, anybody else. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we have to work together. I always tell everybody, you know, Go hire somebody that doesn't look like you. And if they suck, then fire them. If they don't do the job, 
fire their ass, you know? I mean, if I don't do the job, fire me. But how do you know if I can coach? How do you know if I can be a head coach? How do you know if I can be successful if you never hire me? Right, right. So to me, and, you know, again, I'm not trying to be an agitator, but I, you know, I remember a friend of mine, um, or not a friend of mine, a neighbor down the street, and I'm curious. I asked the why, and I said, why do you have a book? It was a little Black Lives Matter thing uh, this white couple put in their uh, window. And I said, oh, that's really nice. And so I said, oh, do you have white guilt? <laughs> and, and they went, what? I said, oh, I'm sorry, do you have white guilt that you put that sign in, in the window? Mm-hmm. I said, actually, I don't actually have to do that because, you know, uh, I treat everybody equal. That's the world I live in. And I said to the woman's husband, I said, you know, you wouldn't really have to put that in your window. Have you ever hired somebody that didn't look like you? Have you hired anybody of color? Would you think about hiring or giving somebody an opportunity? And he stopped and and looked at me like, how dare you say that to me? And I'm not trying to challenge him. I'm just trying to open his mind. You're trying to convince me you care is what I took from that sign. Hire somebody, give somebody a job, change somebody's life, teach somebody what you know if you're successful to live in this community. That's how I, that, that's how I saw it. I, you know, maybe I was being a jerk, but maybe it was a teachable moment. I think you bring up a very valid point that's being brought up by countless people is the performative action versus actionable change. And those are the conversations we need to be having because sure, it's all good and well, you putting a Black Lives Matter sign in your, in your window or on, on your porch, but what actionable change is yes. being made. And that's has to be the bigger focus. And it certainly has to be the bigger focus for white men and women. Performative action is yep. beautiful or excuse me, performative action does not do anything for future change. It's just a, a nice sentiment. It's a, it's, it's a saying, you know, it's right. like, you know, p- people who put, you know, quotes out on the internet every day, but <laughs> You know, they're jackasses in real life. You know, what is it? Uh, be who you are in the light that you are in the dark. Yes. And, and if you're full of, <laughs> you're, if you're just a mean human being, just tell people, look, I'm a mean human being. I don't really care about you. Right. I mean, stick to your guns at this point. But the performative <laughs> action is something we certainly need to leave by the wayside because we there's too much change that needs to needs to happen. And we need to be focused, like I said, on actionable change. Um, switching gears back to your career a little bit, you have the nickname Lady Magic. Will you share with us where that nickname came from? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> when I was growing up in New York, you know, going up to Rucker Park, they nicknamed me Fire because I had this kind of fiery personality. You know, I was 12, 13, redheaded little skinny kid, but it, you know, I act like I was the biggest kid in the park and there, you know, people were, you know, twice my age. And it wasn't until I got to old minion and, you know, boom, boom, boom. I'm throwing all these passes, no look do my legs around my back. It must've been my junior year. And magic Johnson was a freshman at Michigan state. And he played uh, in our men's holiday classic at old Uh minion. 
And a few days later in the Virginia pilot, the writer went, if he's magic, Nancy must be lady magic because she's been throwing those same passes for the last, you know, three years. And it just kind of stuck after that. And then, you know, Irvin and I got to be friends and, um, you know, we would laugh over, you know, magic, lady magic. Does he call you lady magic? No, uh, he, no, he calls me, he calls me Nancy. But, you know, <laughs> I played against his sister, Evelyn, in college. And, you know, we'd sit there and talk and, you know, kind of mutter, mutter under our breath at the foul line to each other. And, uh, you know, Irvin was so proud of her. You know, Irvin Johnson's always been proud of women. You know, he's, uh, he owns uh, the, the L.A. Sparks for goodness sakes. Mm-hmm. He is a supporter of who we are, what we are, and what we're all about. And I, I'm really happy about that. And I've known him, you know, for since the early 80s. So Lady Magic and Magic. Uh-huh. Beautiful. <laughs> I love I, I love that. And I think people love that too. And, and it, it's beautiful to see how you guys are both excellent at your craft and earned, earned those nicknames like that. So um, I, I absolutely love that story. Your career is lined with historic firsts. First woman to try out for an NBA team, first woman to play in a men's pro league, first woman to be head coach in the NBA's developmental league, and a list of others. What do those firsts mean to you? Do they carry much weight or are they just accomplishments that happened from hard work? There are accomplishments that happen from hard work, but I know a lot of people who work hard and don't get those accomplishments. So I am keenly aware that I'm, I'm very blessed. You have to be lucky. When you're in it, you don't think about it. Remember, it goes back to uh, if I'm thinking about, you know, all the great things that I've done in my life. <laughs> I mean, I, you know what I'm saying? Right. I, I don't think about it. I think about being great. I think about being prepared. I think about being purposeful in what I do, being a good teammate or being a good coach and, mm-hmm. and giving the players what they need. I don't think about the historic part. Um, you know, when people go, oh, you're, you're a pioneer and you're a legend and you're this and you're that. And I'm like, holy, God. you know, I played this game because it was fun. It made me feel good. I got to be with my friends and to, to look back and see um, how I'm treated or, or, or how players or coaches or it's, I have to tell you, it's um, if I do have a chance to be that honest, it's very humbling Mm -hmm. because, you know, there are people around the world, uh, athletes, celebrities that I know. And there are days that it's like, I can't believe I know Jamie Fox. I can't believe that I knew Muhammad Ali. I can't believe uh, my friendship with Kobe or Magic or Tarasi or Annika Sorenstam. I, I feel kind of really lucky, um, you know, to be asked last year, you know, I think after we spoke, I went to the, uh, after the playoffs to go to the U S open and flip the coin uh-huh. the day after Kobe did to start the matches on center court at the U S open. I mean, I feel, I feel honored 
And, you know, and like I had texted Kobe that uh, that morning. I said, hey, are you in New York? He goes, yeah, I flipped the coin yesterday. I said, I'm doing it today. And I go, I'm going behind my back. And he goes, unbelievable. <laughs> and I took the coin and went behind my back on center court. Trying to outdo Kobe. <laughs> and just having some fun with you know, where I am in my life and the, the things that I, I get to do, it's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Sometimes it's hard to believe it's me. You bring up Kobe, though, and what Kobe did on and off the court is second to none. What he did and was doing for the WNBA as far as pushing it to center court, pushing it at the forefront of everyone's minds, hadn't really been done by a male athlete on that level before how important was what he was doing to the growth of the WNBA and how important do you believe it'll be for NBA players to continue supporting their female, their, the women in the WNBA? It's a great question. It's essential. It's not optional for men of the NBA um, to champion us. And it wasn't until, you know, I was on the board of the um, NBA Retired Players Association and we have our annual all-star break. We have, you know, our meeting with uh, Adam Silver and he gives us the state of the union of where the league is. We get to ask him questions. And for the six years that I was on the board, uh, you know, Adam would look at me and he goes, Nancy, I know you have a question for me. So I always, it became a a running joke that I would always ask the first question of all our board members. And we were just excited to have an hour with the commissioner. Everybody was pulling at him. And he said something which was, you know, really, I would not have known and none of us would have known. And I'll share it with you. He said that, uh, you know, he got to know Kobe better in retirement than he did when Kobe played because Kobe was calling him and saying, what can I do? How can I help you? And he goes, he reminded me of David Stern. He said, Kobe was like a doer. If he said he was going to do something, he did it. And he did it with passion. And he said, he called him up one day and he says, can you connect me with Kathy? I'd like to, to, to meet her. So he swapped numbers. Um, I, I, I doubt you, you've heard the story, but he swapped cell numbers with Kobe and with Kathy. And he says three, three weeks later, Kobe's in the NBA office and he's sitting with Kathy for three hours in, in the office saying, what are you doing for women's basketball? He's probably trying to set the play for Gianna's <laughs> generation. What are you doing? How can I help? What do you need me to do? He was so passionate. You know, it's one thing for me or Ann Myers or Diana Taurasi or Della Don or, you know, Brittany Griner to, uh, to say, no, you got to believe in us. You know, we're really hardworking. We've got a great, you know, lineage. But when Kobe Bryant is out front saying that women athletes, they need this respect, they need this support, they need equality, everybody listens. And... You know, um, Friday before he died, I was in the studio doing the Pelicans game. And 
there were a couple guys uh, sitting in front. There's like three or four TVs. And like if you're doing the Spurs, you watch the Spurs game, you watch Oklahoma City, I'm watching the Pelicans. And before the game, the guys were talking and they went, can you believe that Kobe said that women can play in the NBA, Maya Moore, Tarasi? And I just kind of stood up and I went, hello, guys, I'm still back here. And they started laughing. I, I don't know if it was Sid Sabalis or, or, or Matt Bonner or any of And I go, you know, <laughs> I played for the Lakers in 80. I played for Pat Riley. It wasn't easy, but it's doable. And I said, I love what Kobe said. So we kind of were going back and forth and me being a pill. I go, let's see what Kobe says. So I'm telling you, Annie, on a whim, I just went to my phone and I texted Kobe and I said, do you want to talk about women playing against men? Now I'm going to change some of the wording, <laughs> but he was like, blah, 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 yes. And I go, when? He goes, now. I was like, okay. And he was like, that whatever newspaper writer was trying to say that women can't compete against men. And there's these weekend Joe blow ass players that couldn't even compete with WNBA. He was, he was hot. Mm -hmm. And so I went, yeah, you know, uh, obviously I agree with you. He goes, you played against men your whole career. Right. And he started rattling like me playing with the Lakers and me playing, um, in the uh, uh, with the Utah Jazz in '87 and the USBL in '86, and I was like, "You remember?" And he was damn straight. I remember. So we start talking, you know, through text. And I said, "How's Gian?" And he says, "Come out and coach her team next week." And I went, "Yes." I mean, it was like before he could hit the last period. I was like, "Yes." And he says, "When do you want to come out?" This was Friday night. I said, "I will." call you Monday. I have TV Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. He goes, okay, let's do it. You'll have as much time as you want. And I was like, okay. So I had to go do an appearance in California near Palm Springs. And I got a call late in the night and it was, Hey, this is Kobe, right? Like Adam Silver said, he wants to get everything. So I told TJ, I said, hey, I was talking to Kobe. I'm going to go coach Gianna's team with him at the, the Mamba Academy. I didn't know when, so I left it like that. Mm -hmm. It's whatever, midnight or uh, Saturday night. And it's like, okay, can you come Wednesday? I said, yes. So it's like, you'll come to LA, come to the house. We'll take the helicopter over to the academy, grab a bite to eat. We got as much time as you want come back, you can stay with us, you go home Thursday morning. I'm like, I mean, if he said go home at three in the morning, I'd say, okay. I was so excited mm -hmm. to do this for him because he has such respect for us. Sunday morning, my son lands in, I think it was Italy, and I'm in a conference and TJ's like, mom, mom, mom. And I'm like, TJ, what? He goes, mom. You didn't hear. I go, TJ, I'm at a conference. Baby, what? He goes, 
Mom, I thought you died in the helicopter crash. Kobe died. I fell to my knees, Annie, and a Secret Service guy grabbed me before I hit the floor. I could not breathe. And TJ kept saying, Mom, you didn't hear, you didn't hear. I go, TJ, I, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, Mom, Kobe Bryant died. His helicopter crashed, and I thought you were on it. He was, he was so important to us. He was so important. He loved to help women. He reveled in it. And to lose him, um, you know, I, I feel so, like everybody else, I feel horrible for Vanessa and the kids because he was such an amazing daddy. He was an amazing man. Truly, truly, that's a day that that none of us will forget. And my, since I mean this from the deepest depths of my soul to the people who knew him directly, I send nothing but love to you because it's something we all felt. And again, if you knew him directly, something that will ch- change everyone's life forever. So Nancy, I, I sincerely apologize for that loss and and do mean it when I say I send my love to you and of course to his family as well. Your charities, the Nancy Lieberman charities contribute so much to communities across the country, school supplies, basketball camps, scholarships, you teach financial literacy. And of course the dream courts, you've built 91 courts in total. Your most recent was in Lubbock, Texas. Um, and COVID has not slowed down your charity work. You've continued to provide and, and give back to the to communities again across the country. I wonder though, how have you, if at all, had to readjust your game plan when COVID did hit? And what are you working on now? Are you continuing the dream courts or or what's the what's what's the immediate focus right now? Well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Um you know, COVID has kind of derailed a lot of people. And, you know, we really, um, this summer was our 40th year of, of our basketball camps. And we've had over 200,000 children in 40 years come to camps and get scholarships. Uh, so many players in the WNBA or guys in the NBA. Um, but we wanted to follow the the CDC guidelines and state guidelines. We didn't want to get anybody um, sick uh, on any level, but what we did feel that if, if we could have these two weeks of camps, I mean, uh, I mean, a lot of mental health, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, not only for young people, but for parents as well, because they couldn't do anything and everybody's on top of each other. And, there's just a lot. Sometimes you just need to breathe a little bit as a parent. And sometimes kids just want to get outside and play mm-hmm. as much as I loved having my son TJ back, you know, from, from Israel and having these six months with him, which were super cool. Um, a lot of families really struggled, you know, losing jobs, being furloughed, laid off or, or even fired. So we wanted to do something for the parents. So we were lucky that we got through two weeks of basketball camp. Um, we had uh, over 200 kids with us. Mm-hmm. We were just so happy. But, you know, no high fives, no hugs. You know, you came by and it was squirt, squirt. <laughs> and watch your hands. I mean, that became the, 
you know, you just look at a kid for no reason and go, wash your hands. <laughs> you hear me? Just wash your hands in 20 seconds. I have a stopwatch, you know, literally. <laughs> um, I know we would walk around going, that was 18. <laughs> Get back in there for two seconds. So you know me now. I'm a little, a lot of sarcasm, a little humor, a lot of truth. Um, you know, a lot of air hugs with the kids, but it was great. Then we had our golf tournament in September again for for people. We had free uh, COVID testing at the site for 150 people. Um, we had to change, you know, our structure, but uh, we were able to to figure it out. But it's it's hard. Uh, you know, like TJ, my son is in Italy playing right now. Right. Um, outside in, in Bresca, right outside of uh, Milan. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'd love to go see my kid. But I would have to, uh, you know, I'd have to quarantine for 14 days. I'm not right. quite sure a 26-year-old wants his mom in his place for two weeks. <laughs> when Milan and the models are right down the road. Hey, not everyone's mom is Nancy Lieberman, though. So, so <laughs> I think that kind of, kind of gets pushed to the south <laughs> when you're 26 and good looking. Um, and then, you know, what happens if they shut down the borders and I, I can't get back in right. our country. So it, it's changed so much. Um, you know, which, so uh, we are doing financial literacy. I, I bet you I'm doing, you know, 10 Zooms a week, um, uh, graduations, doing things, you know, uh, with police, first responders, firefighters, doing a ton of interviews. And uh, gra- uh, we, we must have done three or four graduations, but we've given out 75,000 uh, KN95 masks. Wow. Um, to hospitals. We, we go into the underserved community because they don't have masks. And right. if they get it dirty or they lose it. Um, we can't forget about our, our brothers and sisters right. who might not have access to all this stuff. Uh, the first wave, we fed, I think it was over 3,000 first responders, hospital workers. Uh, we did COVID testing with uh, Dr. Khan um, at Well Health. Uh, we've opened up two dream courts for the late Andre Emmett, mm-hmm. um, who was murdered last uh, September. Mm-hmm. So we did one here in Dallas uh, a couple months ago, and then we just got back from uh, Lubbock with his mother, uh, Jarrett Culver, who is the guard for the Timberwolves. Mm-hmm. He's a, a native of Lubbock, went to Texas Tech. He right. and Coach Beard and the team and the city, um, we all teamed up with the mayor to build Andre's we're just trying our best. You know, you said recently in an interview that you don't get hired on a resume, you'll get hired on your relationships. And it was um, an interview that was in regards to the NBA finally making a a hire of a woman as the head coach of, of a team in the NBA. And, you know, there have been multiple reports and there continues to be multiple reports about when that day will come and when Becky Hammond will get that opportunity. It seems like she's one of the women that we'll see get that opportunity soon. 
What did you mean by that statement of you won't get hired on a resume, you'll get hired on relationships? And second part to that question, when do you feel the MBA will make that jump of giving the opportunity to a woman who's qualified to be the head coach in the NBA? Well, let me tackle the first one, uh, the, the last question first. You have to be qualified. And uh, it, it is, uh, in many cases, pay your dues uh, type of occupation. Now, pay your dues could mean Steve Nash having relationships with players. He's been in the game. I got hired just like Jason Kidd. I played you know, in the first year in 97 in the WNBA. And I went right into coaching and being a GM. Mm-hmm. And I, there were some coaches in the WNBA that, you know, like you didn't pay your dues. And I was like, who are you to tell me that I didn't pay my dues? I, I, I'm 40 years old. I've been at this since I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Everybody pays their dues differently. But I had relationships because I had been in the league for so long and been around the NBA. Same thing with Jason Kidd when he retired and then, you know, he went in and started coaching with the Nets. Uh, Same thing with Steve Nash. Uh, For me, Becky certainly has paid her dues. I think next year will be maybe her seventh year. I could be wrong. You can fact check me, but I think it'll be her seventh year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's certainly been in the right system with the right coach to develop her and prepare her for that moment. It could be Lindsay Gottlieb. I mean, Lindsay went boom, right to the front of the bench in Cleveland. And, you know, she, she's got 20, 25 years of head coaching experience. Um, you know, I had 25 years or 20 years of head coaching experience. There are a lot of women who are going to get to that point now. And I applaud again, Adam Silver. Mm-hmm. For coming out and saying that he'd like to see a female head coach in the NBA sooner than later. And it's not just, let's just check this box because that's not how he operates. And quite frankly, that's not how Rick Carlisle, who's the president of uh, the, the NBA coaches association, he doesn't operate like that. They want to give opportunity, but then you have to do your job. I think there's maybe 11 uh, women coaching in the NBA right now right. In cert- on certain levels. Mm-hmm. They're making friendships, relationships. It's a tight-knit family. And again, when you have the president of the Coaches Association who is an advocate for women and Coach Carlisle, if, when you have Adam Silver and Mark Tatum, deputy commissioner, you know, really wanting hard for women to have this next step opportunity, it's going to happen. I don't know when, but it, it will happen, whether it's Becky, whether it's Lindsay, whether it's Jenny, whether it's Lindsay, it's, go, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And look what happened, uh, you know, for Kara Lawson, you know, being on, on a bench for, for two years. And right. she started at ESPN. Then she went to Washington to do, you know, uh, the TV, you know, for, for the Wizards. Relationships. Then she goes from the Wizards to the bench with uh, she, with the Celtics and Brad Stevens. And then because of, you know, all the relations, uh, what she learned, the experiences, 
she gets the Duke job because she was ready for that moment. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen. Duke just didn't hire her just because they hired her because she was prepared for her moment. And she had created so many relationships. It's a beautiful thing. You became the first woman to coach a professional men's sports team when you were named the head coach of Team Power in 2018 in the big three. And then you went on to be the highest paid coach just because of the success that your team had, the success you coached your team to. What are plans for the big three in 2021? And do you plan to return to coaching with the big three in 2021? Uh, I will do anything Ice Cube needs. Um, I have such admiration for him. Um, I feel very fortunate to have him in my life or to, for him to call me his spirit animal. And I was like, that's good, right? Spirit animal, that's a good thing. And, you know, uh, to have somebody like that, I mean, I just think the world of him. And, you know, even like yesterday, I text him, hey, are you okay? I don't know where your home is in proximity to the fires. And, you know, he always calls me NL. He goes, NL, thank you for checking on me. But uh, when he was working on his contract for Black America and and uh, for prison reform, we had long, deep conversations. I found out he was a pet turtle in the backyard. And a rapper shouldn't have a turtle, okay? It should be Why a not? Pit bull. Why not? <laughs> He's just super cool. He really is. He's a great father. He's a great husband. He's a, he's iconic. And he has a turtle. And um, I hope that the big three, I, I thought him, he was one of the first people that said, we're not going to put our people in harm's way. And he, he canceled the season. And I respect him for that. I mean, that this is his baby. Right. So we're looking at 2021, you know, God willing, uh, you know, with COVID. And, you know, look at the NBA is trying to figure out what to do. Right. Everybody's trying to figure it out at, on the fly. We'll see what happens. But do I want to coach? Absolutely. Um, do I want? I, I miss my players. I miss Big Baby. I miss Birdman and Clinton Richardson. But I stay in touch with Corey and Catino. And yeah, you had a lot cool. of Chicago guys on your team, Corey, Quentin. Um, what was it like coaching the Chicago guys? Let me say, Quentin Richardson is one of the toughest guys I've ever seen. Man. He is no joke. I mean, you want, not only is he talented, if I said the bus is leaving at 10, I promise you Q Rich was in the lobby at 10 till. I was like, you know, you're early. He goes, yes, coach. He would bring me licorice because I love licorice and his kids would send licorice um, so I could have licorice. He is one of the most incredible uh, human beings. And then Corey, you know, the MVP, I call him, captain or MVP. To have somebody like that leading your team. Right. And and helping us win a championship. Uh, Yeah, these are tough guys. I mean, when you're from Chicago, it's no joke. And then, you you know, you, you have Catino, who's from Philly, uh, mm-hmm. but he lives in L.A., and he's like the, the, the scientist of the team. <laughs> and uh, really, besides Rondo, um, him and Rondo are the two smartest guys I've ever coached. They're, 
recollection, their recall, their IQ is off the charts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another great dad. You definitely put together a very special team and it was exciting to see you guys here in Chicago. The last question I need to ask to you, and it's something that I plan to ask every guest on this show. What are your hopes for the next generation of women in sports? My hope is equality uh, in opportunity and pay, which means America has to fall in love on a whole nother level. They have to want to watch us on TV. They have to want to buy a ticket. Uh, If they're in a position of sponsorship, they're going to have to want to sponsor this league. Uh, Like the NBA is a multi-billion dollar organization. And the women, the game's in really good hands. There's amazing gatekeepers. You know, uh, my little sister, Sabrina Inescu, is unbelievable, and I hope she's healing up. For the Sue Birds, the Brittany Griners, uh, Angel McCautries, the Tarassis, the veterans of the league, Deladon, they've been amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm such a fan. And if you can make the, the previous generation fans, you're doing the right thing. And they deeply care and they're passionate about what they do. And we just have to, you know, time's our greatest ally. And if we can just keep growing and getting bigger, stronger, better, and getting more opportunity, sky's the limit. And our biggest fans are the NBA, mm-hmm. the, the LeBrons and the Chris Pauls and, you know, um, Donovan Mitchells. And I mean, we need, we need them, you know, to love on us and support us because their credibility is what we talked about with Kobe. So it'll be very important to us. Nancy, thank you so much. I could spend all day chatting with you, listening to your stories about life and the game of basketball, but I appreciate this hour you gave to me and to Equal Play. And as always, I wish you well. And again, appreciate your time. Thank you so much. 